When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Oscar-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney turns his attention to the visionary behind Apple in Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, now available in theaters and on demand. Richard Gere plays a homeless man struggling to navigate the system and to reconnect with his estranged daughter in Time Out of Mind. Available on demand September 15th, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer, and in this episode, Allison and I argue over which of us owes their career to their famous father, and which of us is just a bum living off their parents' wealth. Then we agree that both of those options sound pretty good, all things considered, as we discuss Alex Ross Perry's psychological drama, Queen of Earth. Later in the show, we'll bring you Q Shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme. And in honor of Queen of Earth, we thought we'd take a look at the career of cast member Patrick Fugit, who everyone probably still knows best from his breakout role as William Miller in Almost Famous, but then neither of us could contend with the idea of discussing We Bought a Zoo, in which Fugit plays one of the zoo workers. And so instead, we'll look at some other movies featuring breakdowns like the one experienced by Elizabeth Moss's character in Queen of Earth. But first, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, you're up this time. What are our picks? Well, our main pick this week is one of my favorite movies of the year so far, and it's called Love and Mercy. And I could happily go the rest of my life without ever watching another musical biopic, or so I thought until I saw this one, actually, which is... I think it's about as good as these sorts of movies come. It's about the mercurial genius of the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, at two totally different points of his life. In the late 1960s, he's played by a really fantastic Paul Dano as he begins to succumb to mental illness while he's simultaneously crafting basically his greatest albums, his greatest works as an artist. And then 20 years later, he has somehow morphed into John Cusack And he is living life essentially as a hermit, isolated, and under the care of this very controlling, very unethical doctor played by Paul Giamatti. I have this song playing over and over in my head. I just don't have the words or the melody. Do you have anything? on you banana i like it paul dano john cusack look nothing alike 
And frankly, John Cusack and Brian Wilson look nothing alike hmm. either. But the two halves kind of work together in the same way that uh, Brian Wilson's compositions work by juxtaposing two very different elements that shouldn't go together into a surprisingly harmonious whole. I mean, when we watch the movie and we watch Brian Wilson creating pet sounds, that's sort of what he does is he takes these things that shouldn't sound good together and he makes them into one sort of beautiful whole. And that's essentially what the movie does. It's sort of a perfect tribute to him and his music in that way. I really felt watching it that it was substantially greater than the sum of its parts. And I particularly thought Paul Dano was really, really great in this movie as the young Brian Wilson. Uh, It is the sort of performance that does tend to get Oscar consideration, except it came out so early in the year. I have a feeling it'll probably be forgotten, but hopefully I'm wrong. I'd love to be wrong about that. I probably will be someone who's mentioning it at the end of the year as one of the best performances. Did you see this movie, Allison? I have not yet. It is on my list. It is on your my list? No, because it is not streaming yet. Oh, it's on your list of movies to see. Yes. But not your my list. I see. Well, it is worth definitely catching up with. I think uh, certainly one of the best musical biopics that's come out in a very long time. It's called Love and Mercy, and that is available now on VOD. Uh, Next up is a film entitled Steve Jobs, The Man and the Machine, and that is available now on VOD. And Steve Jobs is already the subject of enormous curiosity and investigation. He's been featured in in several previous films, documentaries, fiction films. There's also Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs with Michael Fassbender, which comes out, uh, I believe, in about a month. It just had a very successful premiere as we are recording this at the Telluride Film Festival. And this is Alex Gibney's documentary about Steve Jobs. I haven't seen it, but by all accounts, it is a significantly less fawning portrait of the Apple CEO than a lot of the other versions of his life story. And I think that's that's good. I'm, I'm glad we've got a different side of this guy to consider, especially as he is sort of being canonized in these other films like like the Steve Jobs you know, the Aaron Sorkin, Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs. So I think it's kind of cool to maybe turn it into like a double feature or to consider both of them side by side, the fiction version and the documentary version. So that's Steve Jobs, colon, The Man in the Machine, and that's available now on VOD. Finally this week, we've got the new film from Oren Moverman, the director of The Messenger and Rampart. It's called Time Out of Mind. That's available on VOD starting on September 15th. Here's the plot description. George seeks refuge at Bellevue Hospital, a Manhattan intake center for homeless men, where his friendship with a fellow client helps him try to repair his relationship with his estranged daughter. And Richard Gere plays George. Jenna Malone, I believe, plays the estranged daughter. Steve Buscemi also stars in the film. And uh, the thing that I know most about this film, beyond the plot description, beyond the cast, beyond our Moverman, was that they filmed this in New York. Do you know this story, Allison? They filmed the, the film this in New York, Richard Gere. Uh, they sort of kind of uh, filmed Richard Gere dressed as a homeless man in New York City, kind of wandering around trying to get sort of a documentary feel. And Richard Gere was so convincing that a tourist walked up to him while he was filming a scene and tried to give him some food, tried to help him, and only found out about they, – they sort of incorporated it. They just, they just let it roll. Richard Gere is that great of an improv- improvisatory actor. Uh, only apparently found out about it later when the story kind of uh, made headlines, actually. So apparently Richard Gere is so convincing that uh, he was convincing real people on the street. Uh, but Orr Moverman, a, a, a talented director, 
So that's another one I'm interested in checking out. That is called Time Out of Mind. It will be available on VOD on September 15th. I don't deserve this. I just want to be left alone. I want to be left alone with the few people who are left in this world who are decent. You are weak and greedy and selfish. And you are the root of every problem. You are why people betray one another. You are why there is nowhere safe or happy anymore. You are why depression exists. You are why there is no escape from indecency and gossip and lies. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we give you, our listeners, a chance to choose our main review by voting on one of three options. And this time around, we had a slightly shorter voting period than usual, during which time Joe Swanberg's Digging for Fire got left in the dust. The hipster satire Fort Tilden was off to an early lead, but in the end, Queen of Earth, which is now available for rental as well as on demand, took the lead. Queen of Earth is the fourth film from writer and director Alex Ross Perry, who's only 31 years old. Um, And for the sake of disclosure, I suppose we should note that Matt used to work with Alex at Kim's Video. And I was a kind of a swing participant on a movie trivia team in which (laughs) Alex also took part. And I should note, he knew much more movie trivia than I did. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yes. Um... So after two micro-budget indies, Impolex and The Color Wheel, Perry has gone on to work with some more famous actors. Uh, Jason Schwartzman was the star of last year's Listen Up, Philip, alongside Elizabeth Moss, who returns to star in Queen of Earth. Now, Perry's known for this caustic sensibility, and Queen of Earth certainly has that, though unlike those earlier films, which have more comedy in them, this is a straight psychological drama. Moss plays Catherine, who, after a rough breakup with her boyfriend James, who is played by filmmaker and actor Kentucker Audley, seeks solace in the company of her best friend Ginny, played by Catherine Watterson, who's been living in her parents' lake house. Uh, They're not alone, though, as Ginny keeps inviting over her maybe boyfriend, Rich, played by Patrick Fugit, who lives next door. And Catherine, anyway, is pretty consumed by her breakup and by the recent death of her father, a well-known artist. So, Matt, Alex Ross Perry is known for a certain degree of misanthropy, let's say. Mm -hmm. And Queen of Earth is no different. It doesn't feature many characters, but I don't know that you call any of the ones we do spend time with likable. Right. And there are multiple scenes of characters just needling each other and engaging in these very subtle power plays. What did you think of this kind of unforgiving approach when applied to a character who's in such a fragile state? Well, I, you know, I, I think what I ultimately took away from that character was really just the, the, the talent of Elizabeth Moss as an actress. I mean, she is really given a lot to work with here and delivers, I think. And you get to see a real range of what she can do because there are some flashbacks in here to the previous summer. And her character at that time is very different than the character we're seeing now. And they almost seem like two totally different people played by the same woman. So to see that juxtaposition and see that range... I thought was really, you know, kind of instructive. Not that I didn't like Elizabeth Moss to begin with. I've already loved her for Mad Men, but just continuing to see just how much she can do uh, was really wonderful. Beyond that, I have to admit that I didn't love this movie. Um, I, it felt to me a little 
thin. I, I, you know, I like I liked the color wheel. I thought Listen Up, Philip was a, a step forward. I thought it was even better and richer. This, to me, if it wasn't a step backward, was just kind of uh, it didn't really show me anything new necessarily. I thought it was a great showcase for Elizabeth Moss. I thought she was great. And that's about it. I mean, I didn't really get much more out of it and didn't really feel a ton about any of the characters. As you're saying, you know, there's not a real likable character in the bunch. But even more than that, I just they just didn't really feel all that filled in to me that it really just seemed almost like the Elizabeth Moss show. Here it is. Enjoy it. And I did, to a large extent, enjoy it or at least admire it. But I didn't find a ton beneath the surface here. What about you? Yeah, I mean, she's certainly really impressive. And I also really liked Catherine Waterston, who's kind of, she was in Inherent Vice and is kind of having, coming into her own. Right. um, As this, as the best friend who is in a state of more stability and is also, they're kind of frenemies. They're not, they're, they've known each other for a long time. And that was really, I I mean, I agree. I think it's a little thin. That was the only part that I really thought was interesting is the, the kind of your growing understanding that part of the reason that Ginny, the friend is being so not very supportive or so kind of like just digging at her friend who is so clearly not doing well. Right. Is that the summer before they were in opposite positions. The roles had reversed. The roles had reversed. And Elizabeth Moss came with her boyfriend instead of coming alone. Right. And was not supportive and was, and basically apologized for not being a good friend at the end. And I, I think there is something very interesting in that dynamic and something that there's like, as cruel as it comes across in the movie, there is also a flicker of, I think, very human understanding to it. The idea that like, you're unable to get past your resentment for like this person not being a good friend to actually be a good friend to them when they need it. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that otherwise it is, it's just like a very impressive psychological breakdown. Yeah. It just, it, it unfolds very in like, a, it's very well acted. And I think the cinematography, uh, Sean Price Williams who's a cinematographer gets like just up close in her face so often and often will not necessarily the, the film will not necessarily cut to the other person in the conversation on the beats that you expect. Mm-hmm. We'll just like hold on Elizabeth Moss's face right. in a way that increases a sense of claustrophobia. Yeah. And, you know, I think the filmmaking is also, it's good. I just, solid, very solid. It just, it, it doesn't seem to kind of reach for much more than that. No, I mean, I, I have no idea how long it took to create this film, but it feels like something you could kind of conceive in a couple of days and write in a couple of weeks and shoot in a couple of weeks. And, and, and like, it, 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 it's so small. Uh, and maybe that was the goal. And, and certainly there's something to be said for making something where, you know, you, you say, well, I've got this fabulous actress and I've got this house in the woods for a couple of weeks. Why not make a movie? I think that actually was what happened. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Like- we have less resources available than right. for Listen Up, Philip. Right. And so here's what gonna, we have. We're going to scale to that. What can we do? And I would say if that is how it happened, then good for them because they understood exactly the means that were available to them and they played to their strengths. And you're right. The the, the photography is really sharp. It's at times really beautiful. This This house that they're at, there's some absolutely gorgeous photography of the lake, the water, which again – calls to mind sort of like the surfaces that we're looking at throughout the movie, including Elizabeth Moss's face, which, as you say, these intense close-ups where they don't cut away and you really feel that claustrophobia and that anxiety. There's also a really great scene, I thought the best scene in the movie, where she's sort of 
having a breakdown at a party and the photography is sort of distorted. The way that everyone is, is photographed seems kind of fish-eyed and everyone sort of seems kind of monstrous. And I, I can't say I've ever had that sensation, but I've certainly had the sensation of, of sort of being overwhelmed at a, in, at a place like that. And uh, I felt like the movie really sort of put you really inside the mindset of someone who's starting to really crack up. I thought that scene in particular was very well handled. But I have to say, like, nothing in this movie I found more interesting than – listen up, Philip. There was sort of an interlude where Elizabeth Moss's character sort of took center stage. And there wasn't a lot of plot there either, but it was just sort of like following this character through her life at this particular moment. And to me, that character in those few scenes seemed – a lot richer and more, I don't know, more real and tangible than than this character in Queen of Earth to me. Yeah, well, I think that what's interesting about Listen Up, Philip in comparison to Queen of Earth is that Listen Up, Philip is very much in the head of Jason Schwartzman's character and this guy who is like, just an asshole. <laughs> like, just, like, just an unrepentant asshole. Yeah. But like, then you have this break where you step out aside from his this like subjective, like yeah. grindingly subjective view, and then you follow Elizabeth Moss's character, and then you kind of see the world from outside of this this guy's head. Whereas Queen of Earth is very deliberately subjective throughout. You know, we barely it's only like kind of at the end where we start to get glimpses of of Elizabeth Moss's character from the outside mm -hmm. and sort of just seeing her as an object of concern and of this, that party scene that you speak of that, you know, it's from her perspective for a while. And it's like, everyone is just like clawing at her and surrounding her. Yeah. And then it cuts to what's actually happening. And everyone in the party is just staring at this girl, having a freak out in the corner. Right. Uh, and I, I, I think that, there's some interesting there there's some good stuff that comes from the the subjectivity of the movie that it's so lodged in her point of view. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned Patrick Fugit's character, who is just kind of the guy who comes by. And you can see maybe in a movie that wasn't so much from her point of view that he would just be the guy who's like, Why is your friend being so mean to me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I, you invited me by and your friend is so mean to me for no reason. And uh, but instead, he's this very creepy presence in the movie because she doesn't want him there. Yeah. And so she sees him as this annoyance, as this threat, as a sleazy The root guy. of all depression or something like yeah, that is what she this, says like, at one point. This monologue that's basically like, you ruined the world and killed my father. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, we haven't really mentioned him too much yet. Patrick Fugit, he's really good in this, actually. He is you really know, good in this. That, I think of him, as you've mentioned earlier, as the, the, the cute little kid from Almost Famous. Who, yeah, the picture of innocence, the picture of sweetness. And he's, he's kept fairly busy, I would say. I mean, he's popped up here and there and things. Uh, he hasn't really made an impression to me in much of anything since Almost Famous. Here he makes an impression doing something I don't expect to see him doing, at least I hadn't before this, which is, yeah, playing something a little more sinister, a little more icky. Granted, again, this is all... This how Elizabeth Moss's character sees him, but he really does kind of embody this really slimy guy. Like he pulls that off, and I was I was very pleasantly surprised by him. I didn't expect to see that side of him, and uh, I, I give credit to him for 
I don't know, showing me some more things that I didn't know he could do. And also to Alex Ross Perry, to casting him, you know, again, very much against his type. I hope we get to see him doing kind of this. Maybe you kind of want to see him doing like a, a like a movie where he actually is kind of a, a sleazebag or some kind of psychological thriller where he is the serial killer or something. I feel like his sort of boyish good looks plays off very nicely with the sort of darker side of the character as interpreted by Elizabeth Moss. So yeah, kudos to, to him. I thought he was great. Yeah, I, I liked him too. I, I think the other thing we haven't talked about, which is maybe the other undercurrent that is running through this movie beyond the idea of a toxic friendship, mm -hmm. which is that these two characters are both maybe like the kind of failed children of wealth, mm. you know, that that's it's there. There's this lengthy scene in which, in which Ginny needles Catherine about working for her dad, right? And that, that she never tried to be an artist by herself. Instead, she became her dad's assistant, essentially. And in the same time, in flashbacks, we see Catherine needling Ginny to be like, or, or why don't you have a job? Why don't you? Why, don't, why haven't you tried to do anything? Why are you just living at your parents' beautiful house? And I, what do you think of that? Did you think there was enough there to actually be a theme? I, you know, I certainly observed all those things you're mentioning. I didn't really, I didn't really take a ton away from it. To me, the, the part that resonated best was what you already mentioned earlier, was the stuff about the frenemy aspect, right? The idea that you can, you can sort of have a, a, a rivalry. Like you, can, no, you can't hate anyone as much as you hate your best friend when they're up and you're down, basically. Yeah. And that a friendship, particularly a long friendship, where you almost feel like you're obligated to stay with this friend because you've had this long history, that when they're successful and you're not, that that can become acidic and, and almost poisonous. That was the part of this that I felt kind of had a, uh, the, the, the biggest kernel of truth. The other stuff didn't, Again, I didn't really take much away from it, but maybe it sounds like you might have. Well, no, I think, I mean, it's, it's, they're more, mostly in the background. I think it's interesting mostly in the ways in which you have these two characters who are kind of sniping at each other over who is the more, has their lives together more. And when you step back a bit, neither of them has their lives together. Right. Like neither of them has actually managed to get out of the shadow of their parents. Kind of, they're, they're both kind of a little there's something arrested development like about both of them um but i will say I, I think that it does have some fun with the idea of the power dynamics i like the ways in which Ginny is always running going off running and is eating right. healthy and that Catherine is like there's one part where she's literally curled on the floor with like fast food bags around her she's a lot of potato chips potato chips yeah yeah, yeah. the that, bowl of salad just sits there forever yes. that she never touches just wilting yeah 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 and I, I mean i thought that was clever the ways in which that's done so i think what you're saying is you're really looking forward to seeing alex ross perry's winnie the pooh hey honestly i what is he going to do with it? I, I don't know, but so that is fascinating. If that you have, if our project. listeners haven't heard, he is writing a Winnie the Pooh, and I, I, as far as I'm, a, I would assume not a revisionist uh, or dark psychological breakdown <laughs> of uh, of Piglet or something. Like he is making like a, for Disney, like yeah. a Winnie the Pooh, and apparently is a big fan of those characters from what I've read. So. I, I, I cannot wait to. In see. my time as a coworker of his, I don't recall him mentioning Winnie the Pooh, but perhaps. 
perhaps uh, he just didn't bring it up. That's very that's very possible. But yeah, I mean, I I I, I don't want to make it seem like I dislike this movie. I think I think for what it is, again, it's it's I think its ambitions are relatively small, and I think it succeeds at those ambitions. I just I just didn't think it was sort of you know I, you know it's not a masterwork. It's not something really outstanding that really grabbed me by the throat. I thought it was a very it was a solid little indie movie with a very strong lead performance from Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think I like it a bit more than you do, but it is ultimately just a smaller film from a talented filmmaker with a great lead actress. Yeah. Worth seeing. Yeah. So that is Queen of Earth and it is available on demand and for rent. The whispered conversation As familiar as always Fear the early morning madness Fear the magic in the making Why everything's as we never said goodbye Alison, I can't it anymore we're gonna have to talk about movies where people have mental breakdowns ah! how was that it was very convincing thank I'm you gonna, let me call alex ross perry right now <laughs> i've got your next star. movie it's called king of earth <laughs> movies about characters undergoing mental breakdowns this is a, a, a subgenre a very specific subgenre you're a fan of allison i think it tends to be an actor's showcase a lot of the time yes i mean there is something almost there's something a little old fashioned about it. And there's something a little old fashioned about Queen of Earth, I would say, even. Mm. Like, it seems sometimes a bit of a throwback. But yeah, it, it's all in the strength of the performer, really. Right? Yeah. You don't hear too much about real life mental breakdowns, but they happen on screen with regularity. And you're right, in the past, inclu- both of my movies are very old, at least a half a century old. It, it was a very popular trope, for sure. There's some movies that we're not going to mention that we've talked about on the show before, so I just thought we would throw them out first. One of my favorite movies from the last couple of years, Take Shelter. Excellent movie about a breakdown. Yes. Uh, that is available uh, for rental, at least. I don't, I don't believe it's streaming anywhere at the moment, but a fabulous movie with Michael Shannon. A very convincing... He's a man who knows how to have a breakdown. Yes, he, he's, he's pretty good at it. Yeah, that's sort of an anxiety-driven breakdown, which is perhaps why that one... <laughs> Struck so close to home for me. Uh, what other ones have we discussed on the show? Well, The Shining, a classic one oh, that yeah. we've discussed, I'm sure, many times on the show. You don't need us to recommend that one. Mommy Dearest, a movie we have mentioned on the show before. Uh, another movie about a woman sort of undergoing a psychological breakdown, really just kind of just cracking up for an hour. And certainly an actor showcase, though perhaps not in a good way. Uh, <laughs> Faye Dunaway really, really giving it her all in in that film. Anyone who's seen it knows exactly what I'm talking about. Do you want to go first here and give your yeah, first pick? I'll go first. All right. Um, I, especially since my first film is, I think, one of the films that has to have inspired Queen of Earth in some ways. Okay. It is Repulsion, mm. which is available for rent right now. In the way that there's that salad withering on the nightstand in Queen of Earth, Repulsion has the famous rabbit carcass that never got cooked that is just rotting on a plate in the apartment in which the main character lives. Um, This is a 1965 film directed by Roman Polanski, who is, you know, despite being in seemingly permanent exile in Europe due to raping a 13-year-old girl and fleeing the country, 
a great director of movies about women and of about gender. Uh, the main character in this and the character whose breakdown is basically the all-consuming arc of the movie is uh, Carol Ledoux, played by Catherine Deneuve. Uh, she's a manicurist, I think they're Belgian, um, living in London with her older sister, Helen, uh, played by Yvonne Furneaux. And Carol isn't well, uh, even in the beginning, even before her sister leaves on vacation and she starts to really just fall apart. She's not well. She is, she's going through life in this daze. Uh, she's very bothered by the fact that her sister's married lover leaves traces of himself in the apartment. He leaves his, uh, you know, razor in the, in the bathroom. She hears them at night. Um, she's very bothered by this. And when Helen and her boyfriend leave together, she just spirals very quickly into madness and locks herself in the apartment. And the movie has shows time passing. Like the way time passes is very fuzzy it, 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 you know, suddenly the potatoes that are on the out in the kitchen have sprouted. Uh, the, the rabbit starts to molder. The but otherwise, Carol has no sense of it herself, and I, you, she has these hallucinations of men breaking in and sexually assaulting her, of the walls cracking in the apartment, um, of hands reaching out through the walls and grabbing her. And th this is certainly, there's certainly a lot of Freudianisms in this movie, <laughs> undeniably. But I think that, you know, the movie all but says in like the two glimpses of this family photo, um, one we see towards the beginning and one is like the last shot of the movie, is uh, that that Carol was, you know, molested as a child by her father. There's this photo in which she's she's in the background staring as a child, staring like angrily at the man in the photo. Mm. And that so much of this movie is about a character who has been traumatized, but that in one part of it is that like no one wa no one sees that because she's so beautiful. You know, Katrine Deneuve is like just like this flawless at the you know height of her beauty is flawless and all of the ways in which she is weird even in the beginning all of the ways in which she is clearly something is clearly wrong get ignored particularly by the men uh in her life because she's just so beautiful you know one of the uh, one of the real men who comes to the apartment is this character played by John Frazier who just sees her on the street and tries to woo her. And he seems to be a nice guy. He's persistent. He's too persistent, but he seems to be a nice guy. And yet, uh, even though he's like seemingly in love with her, there's a, the, the movie makes it clear that like, Carol has given him nothing. You know, she actually is not capable of giving him anything uh, that, that all he sees is, her outside and kind of is not no one actually grasps the extent to which she is uh she's broken inside uh even before she starts it starts manifesting itself in these ways it's a it's a really disturbing movie uh and i think that certainly the ways in which you know the ways in which the clock ticking and the walls splitting and uh, the ways in which it's shot are very memorable. But it, it is, as we said, a lot of these a lot of these movies come down to a lead performance. And Deneuve is so good without being without softening the character in any way. Carol is disturbing as much as she is disturbed. She is these like big empty eyes, and she she's frightening because she's someone who no one sees clearly. 
uh, we see her much clearer, clearer than anyone else in her life does, even including her sister. We know what happened. So something very bad happened to her when she was little that no one else, even her sister, seems to understand. Mm. And uh, there is, as this is certainly a chilly movie, but I think that there is some empathy in that, in that the movie allows us to see the, this character's trauma more clearly than anyone else in her life does, even as she basically ends up being destroyed. Uh, and it's it's just a movie that is incredibly hard to shake once you've seen it and uh, a really fantastic one. So uh, one of the classics of this genre, I would say, of the break mental breakdown genre. Uh, that is Repulsion, and it is available for rent. Okay, it's a great pick. My first pick is one of the most famous Hollywood movies of all time, but at least according to my notes, we have never discussed it here on Filmspotting SVU in almost 100 episodes, and it is... Sunset Boulevard from 1950, directed by Billy Wilder and currently streaming on Netflix. The uh, the woman in the midst of the breakdown here is Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, once one of the great stars of the silent film era. She is now living in obscurity in the ruins of her once glorious old mansion on Sunset Boulevard. And her life receives a jolt of youthful energy when a screenwriter, who's played by William Holden, drives into her garage to hide out from some creditors. The repo men are looking for him. They want his car because he hasn't been paying his car payments. And when he finds Norma Desmond, she's been working on a script for a comeback vehicle, an ambitious film version of The Legend of Salome. And she convinces Holden's Joe Gillis, who is desperate for work because he's got to pay these creditors, to take on the job of rewriting her script. And once he agrees, she essentially traps him in her house. And then after a while, the whole pretense of working is basically dropped. And he essentially becomes a kept man, living off her wealth and providing her with companionship and attention. And Gloria Swanson's performance is certainly big. I'm talking Tom Hanks big. It is all sneers and glares and these huge gestures which her with her hands, which she keeps twisting into these, like, claws. Um, the character she kind of reminds me of watching it is, like, Count Orlock from Nosferatu. She sort of seems kind of almost... She's grotesque. Yeah, she's, she's over the top. But it works for Norma Desmond, you know, this woman who is still clinging to her glory in the silent film era. She now, to me, it's like she's behaving as if, her whole life is now a silent movie. Hollywood stopped calling, so she's made her life into into her last great film, a notion that becomes, I think, particularly true and kind of disturbingly true in Sunset Boulevard's final scenes. Uh, the whole concept of the movie is about an actor who failed to make the transition from silent films to sound films, which happened. There are many examples in real life of people who were huge stars in the silent era and never became you know, big stars in the sound era. But I think it's interesting how even today, 65 years later, when oh, I think a lot of people, young people watching it today, don't know a ton about the silent film era. They may not really know exactly why a, a movie star wouldn't have made the transition from silent film to sound film. Even in spite of that, I think the movie holds up really well. It works now just as well. Forget about the how you know silent film stars were mistreated and discarded. Now it just plays really well as a movie about how middle-aged women in any era of Hollywood 
get mistreated and discarded. And if you've never seen the movie, I think it can be surprising to discover Norma Desmond is only 50 years old in the film. You imagine her if you know her reputation, if you know the movie, that like she's someone who should be like in a nursing home, you know, that she is should be decrepit. But she's not. And this intense pressure to maintain her youth, and we see in several scenes where she's receiving these beauty treatments to stay youthful that are almost like something out of a torture movie, that she's being brutalized, her face, um, to maintain this youthful glow. And the fact that once you're perceived as no longer youthful and therefore no longer valuable in Hollywood, it's very easy to see how that could drive someone crazy, um, and which is essentially what happens in the film. Billy Wilder is a, a director who doesn't get a lot of credit as a visual stylist. Certainly his images were never as dramatic as his contemporaries, but there are these moments in Sunset Boulevard that say a lot with very simple images. My favorite one is where Norma Desmond returns to Paramount to meet with Cecil B. DeMille. She wants him to direct her in Salome. He directed many of her past movies, which the real Cecil B. DeMille did with the real Gloria Swanson. And he's off making a telephone call, and she's sitting in his director's chair, and one of the gaffers spots her and puts a bright spotlight on her. And all of a sudden, all the extras and the crew kind of look over, and they see her, they recognize her, and they come over. They're all excited to see Norma Desmond back on the lot, and they're shaking her hand, and they're very excited. And then Cecil B. DeMille finishes his call. He walks back over, and he tells the gaffer to get the light back where it belongs, and the light comes off her. And then without another word, the people just dissipate. They just kind of start wandering off. And it's almost, it's like this idea that in Hollywood, whoever is in that spotlight gets the attention, but then the spotlight moves on and the person is still there. And the people look for the spotlight, not the person. And the person is left alone. And I don't know, it's just this very powerful image of loneliness, actually. And that's, I think, the the thing that really resonates in Sunset Boulevard. So... This is a great, great film. If you haven't seen it, I'm gonna. Or- I order you to. Do I have the power to compel listeners to watch movies, Allison? I mean, you can try and see how it works. Watch this movie. I don't. I can't tell. It's just there's there's, there's a one way communication system. I can't find out. You'll have to write in to tell me. But if you write in and tell me at svu at filmspottingsvu.com that you did watch Sunset Boulevard, I'll appreciate that. Let me know because I, I hope you do. This is a fabulous. And very, very moving film, actually, it about is. about uh, about a discarded, only 50-year-old film star. That's the thing that really blows my mind and I think still makes it so effective today. That's Sunset Boulevard, and it is streaming now on Netflix. Also, one of the great beginning and ending scenes. Yes. Really. I, like, I, for some reason, even though it's the very first scene, I didn't spoil anything about know, the, the first scene, impressive. which has another really great visual shot. Yes. And the ending, of course, which everyone knows is, you know, with I'm ready for my close up, which is not exactly it's one of those beam me up Scotty lines. She doesn't say it quite how we all say the line. I don't know the exact phrasing, but the I'm ready for my close up. Mr. DeMille is not what she says. I think she says, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up now or something like that. Mm. All right. Well, for my second pick, I wanted to pick a movie in which someone had basically already had their breakdown. I wanted to see how a movie in which people are dealing with uh, a breakdown. And in particular, in this case, 
how people are trying to pretend the breakdown isn't happening, hasn't happened. Uh, and that is, uh, you can see that in The Ruling Class, which is now streaming on Fandor. This is a 1972 movie directed by Peter Maydak, who also went on to do The Changeling and Romeo's Bleeding. And it's based on a play of the same name by Peter Barnes and stars a really magnificent and very enjoyable Peter O'Toole as Jack Gurney, who becomes the 14th Earl of Gurney after his father dies during a very weird variation on autoerotic asphyxiation involving a uniform and a tutu. But uh, we see very quickly why other members of his family, including Sir Charles, his uncle, who is played by William Mervyn, and his clever wife, Lady Clare, played by Coral Brown, have been pressuring the previous Earl to remarry and hopefully have another heir because Jack has been hospitalized for eight years because he believes himself to be Jesus Christ. JC for short, he will accept that. The uh. self-proclaimed god of love. And uh, Peter Tull has this great entrance in in just like the Jesus hair, which he wears. And he, uh, he, he comes onto the scene basically insisting that everyone call him JC, installing a cross. It's, it's plenty of um, blasphemy in this. Installing a giant cross in which he likes to, you know, pose just to just to relax sometimes and uh, what's what's great about the ways in which this breakdown is dealt with is that it's very obviously inconvenient for the family they don't want anyone to know that the earl of gurney is is insane but they also don't want to lose the family fortune and the title and the name which if he were to be condemned uh, condemned to the asylum, they might. So they connive to have uh, have him marry a woman named Grace, who is his uncle's actually his uncle's mistress. Um, and they actually have a very weirdly sweet romance, if based on entirely fraudulent, uh, uh, entirely fraudulent purposes. But while while Jack, while Peter O'Toole is doing things like shocking and scandalizing the neighbor the neighborhood gentry by like declaring himself the god of love and chasing the women around or um, posing on his cross or claiming that he's going to do a miracle and raise up this table and like fully committing to it even as the table does not actually rise up 10 feet in the air uh, and also claiming whenever he hears something he doesn't like that he's putting it in his pressurized uh, pressure cooker of his mind to make it go away. Mm. Um, He is delightful. He is also like the kindest person that we see of any member of the aristocracy. Everyone he's surrounded by is this manipulative, cold-blooded, monstrous person uh, for all that this is a very funny comedy. Um, even even the doctor who's trying to cure him, played by Michael Bryant, who basically kind of like prods him into and try uh, and ultimately sets him up in a duel with another insane person who believes he's God in an attempt to cure him. And it's a fantastic scene. But... This all comes around to this extremely dark joke, um, which is that even when Jack is like kind of put, uh, kind of develops another persona, when he gets over thinking he's he's Jesus Christ and comes to think he's someone else much worse, um, that he fits in even better with the aristocracy, that he is actually much better when he believes that he's Jack the Ripper. He has convinced himself that that is who he is. Um, and, and the whole final act of this movie, um, 
has some great, terribly dark jokes, including one in which a psychiatrist comes to see him and is convinced he's sane because they both went to Eton together. Uh, and uh, at a certain part, he says, uh, behavior which would be considered insanity in a tradesman is looked on as mild eccentricity as a lord, which turns out to be terribly, terribly true. Mm. And for all that this movie is this like, fairly broad satire of the 1%, and particularly the 1% as in England as it deals with kind of the class system and aristocracy, the the end is like nearly apocalyptic in how it feels and in having this person who is who has decided he is this terrible monster end up being basically the perfect example of of aristocracy in the house of lords it's a really it's a very funny if like very weirdly paced film it's two and a half hours about which is the or it's over two hours which is an odd length of time for a comedy especially one like this but it's it works very well but mostly due to peter o'toole who commits entirely to the ridiculousness of this character and then to the frighteningness of this character um it is uh it's it's pretty delightful uh and and i would highly recommend it it's got one hell of a breakdown and kind of one hell of a of a getting over a breakdown that is the ruling class and it is available on fandor that's one I haven't seen. I'm going to have to check it out. It sounds great. My next pick is a movie and a play that was actually so iconic in its day that its title has since become a term used to describe someone who is tricked into thinking they're insane. It is called Gaslight, which is currently available to rent. And there are a few versions of this story, but I'm recommending the 1944 film directed by George Cukor, and starring the great Ingrid Bergman, who won the first of her three acting Oscars for her performance in the film. And she is a woman who gets uh, gaslighted, I guess would be the term. Her husband systematically works to convince her that she is going mad. And for reasons that I won't spoil, he basically locks her away from the world and uses various methods to trick her into thinking the house is haunted that she has these spells where she forgets things and steals things and then doesn't remember any of it, that she is seeing and hearing people and, and items that aren't there. And meanwhile, while Ingrid Bergman is sort of fighting to maintain her sanity, a Scotland Yard inspector who's played by Joseph Cotton is investigating her husband and her and, her and trying to figure out just what is up and why and sort of it's sort of a race to see will Joseph Cotton kind of find her and figure things out before uh, Ingrid Bergman sort of driven mad by her, her husband. And I watched this movie for the first time earlier today with my wife, and she felt like she wasn't really buying the idea that a woman could be so easily misled by her husband. Uh, I, I'm not so sure. Obviously, the movie is a melodrama. It is exaggerated, but I don't know. I sometimes kind of... I get bothered by noises in my house. I hear things late at night. I'm a night owl. And I think if if uh, my wife was telling me, instead of reassuring me, be like, yeah, I hear it. It's nothing. You're fine. Go back to bed. Like, if my spouse was like, I don't hear anything, well, I feel like yeah. I would start to maybe get a little crazy. I might, I might crack up a little bit. Well, this is its own subgenre, right? The, like, convincing someone that they're crazy, like, sub like diabolique. Sure, like sure. That as yes. Well. Like, there's... And it speaks particularly, like, I feel like it's usually women, yes. not always women. Mm -hmm. It just speaks to how women 
like their reality was treated as more malleable at the time. Yes. You were convinced that like you would, if someone else were to say that's not true, that you should accept it. Right. You right. Know? Absolutely. But I'm saying that uh, regardless, I feel like I could be driven insane very easily if uh, just given the right sort of set of circumstances. It sounds like a project for me, frankly. <laughs> uh, Bergman's performance in this movie is really wonderful. It's very different than Gloria Swanson's in Sunset Boulevard. Much more of an internal struggle. But you can you watch her face as she questions herself and... And it's it's great to sort of see her sort of wrestling with this these feelings that she's having and starting to break down by the end of the movie. And then at the end, she has this incredible scene where she confronts her husband, who's played by Charles Boyer, who's just wonderfully evil in the movie. And this this confrontation scene is just incredible. Obviously, it's not graphic in the same way, but the the, the emotions that come out, the aggression, it's like something out of a torture porn film for many years later it sort of seems to anticipate much darker much sinister films with the performance that uh ingrid bergman gives in this in this scene uh the film was made right at the start of the film film noir period in hollywood and even though it's set in london in the 19th century it looks like a noir movie the streets of london have this dense shadow and fog and there are scenes where Charles Boyer just kind of disappears in the frame. He walks from the foreground to the background and just kind of vanishes. We can hear him walking, but the fog kind of envelops him and he vanishes and has this great gothic atmosphere that's just wonderful. The The saintly Joseph Cotton character probably could have been a little more interesting, a little more complete. He's just sort of a, you know, he's just kind of a, an angel who just kind of appears at the right time. But I loved watching Ingrid Bergman fight to stay sane and i think that that's what i took away from the movie largely about the mental health aspect is that the idea of like a support system which in the right terms you know in the right situation that can kind of save you you know for someone like ingrid bergman and gaslight or even like elizabeth moss and queen of earth when you lose that support system or when the people around you are kind of actively needling you well it's very easy to to lose your mind so so that is gaslight and is available to rent right now on all kinds of various streaming rental websites. Now's the time on the show when we do Allison. And that's totally concise. Something, 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 something. New release roundup. You're getting there. Yeah. I feel like we're making progress. I, I feel guess. like if we do this show for another three or four years... I'll get it. And then You'll we be can able stop. To, and then, then we, we can <laughs> finally stop the podcast. <laughs> the whole show is really just an excuse to teach Allison to do this one thing. She doesn't realize it, but she's being tested. This is like a, a Saw movie or something. <laughs> Only when you finally get the name of this uh, segment of the show right will you be released and you will be free to continue your life and do other things with it. But until then, we will soldier on. Well, we're recording this episode a little bit early because actually by the time you're hearing this – Allison and I will be at the Toronto International Film Festival. We'll both be there covering it. So we haven't seen as many of the big releases that are coming out as we probably would have on a normal episode. We've, we have seen one, though, because it's a movie that will be playing at Toronto right before it debuts, I think, in limited release on the 18th. And that is the film Sicario, which is the new film from Denis Villeneuve, the director of... Prisoners, which we've discussed on the show, an enemy, and it stars Emily Blunt, and she plays this FBI agent who is sort of recruited into the drug war by these, 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 these shady characters. They're, it's unclear who they work for. Maybe they're CIA. We don't really know. They're played by Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, 
and she becomes sort of our eyes and ears into this very insidious and dark drug war that's being apparently going on like sort of like beneath our noses without our awareness that the US government or these these agents of the government are sort of throwing the, the due process out the window and doing whatever they want to sort of fight the war on drugs against these Mexican drug cartels and she is sort of witness to these horrible things that they're doing. Allison, we've both seen this one. Yes. Did you like it? I am very mixed on this movie. Oh. I think it's beautifully made. It's got uh it's it's shot by Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. Uh it's got a great cast. But I feel like ultimately the story seemed very silly to me. Oh. That I, I felt like it was very kind of deflatingly that it was like this. It was like a, a B movie, almost a cheesy movie that was yearning for this type of grand. This sense of mythos that I think that kind of Villeneuve aims for in all of his movies a bit, mm. even Prisoners, uh, the, the, that it just didn't come through for me. That's it. That's interesting. Yes, I agree. He doesn't definitely has a sort of seriousness, whether earned or not, to all of his movies. They're all a little heightened. They're yes. all there's something that's like a slightly tweaked from reality. And you're right too that he basically makes genre movies, but he makes them with this sort of gloss or patina of importance. Where and in a film like Prisoners, I didn't feel like it earned it. Yeah. Whereas I, I did. Right. We, we, flipped we flipped here because I like this one. I like yeah. this one a lot. I mean, I don't think it is a sort of. Uh, like great powerful film i just thought it was a really effective thriller i mean from the very first scene where there is this shocking moment of violence i was just on edge from there on and the whole movie i was nervous and uncomfortable and squirming in my seat and literally by the end of the movie i was sort of like afraid to look at the screen a little bit because i was i had this sensation that at any moment any of the characters could kill any of the other characters it is this sort of swamp of amoral people and i don't know that i necessarily like cared for any of them besides emily blunt and even emily blunt i will say gets stuck in this role of being like the moral center of a movie that is kind of a thankless role as much as i think she pulls some really good stuff into it it is sort of a thankless role i would say by design i think a lot of people are gonna feel the way you do and feeling like she's sort of hung out to dry in this movie and the movie kind of abandons her by the end of it i think that that's sort of the point of what they're going for here which is sort of that anyone who gets drawn into this drug war that like no matter how honest or upstanding you are how righteous your motives are eventually you will be sort of consumed by it and that like there are so many movies where, you know, one good person can make a difference. And this movie basically says that is not actually true. And that one good person cannot make a difference and things are horrible. And it's a that's a really depressing and bleak message. But I felt like the movie sort of, I don't know, had the courage of its own disgusting and cynical convictions that it followed that through to the very bitter end. Yeah, except that I feel like that's the message that comes up a lot with the drug war. I mean, I feel like it's kind of the message in Traffic, which was made, you know, what, like a decade ago now. Yeah, except Traffic, you know, I don't want to spoil Traffic, but the end of Traffic has, there's some hopeful notes there. Uh, If you think about the very end of Traffic, that ends with a note of hopefulness. Sure, but I guess I feel like this movie ends with a note of like over the top grimness that seemed, which is why it seems silly to me. Yeah, I guess I could I could see it. I I didn't really take it as grimness so much as I did sort of like bleakness and cynicism. Like I I hear grim and I think like that. Like I I hear you know you're using it that way. Like grimness is like just like so cheap in movies like people want grim and gritty right and it, and, and and that's kind of yeah that is how that's I how you felt about it yeah. I, I just disagree I, mean, I will say that 
I, this movie feels in some ways like a spiritual sibling to No Country for Old Men in the sentiment that it goes for at the end. And in even some of the weird beats to it. It's a totally different movie. Yeah. And yet it did. It reminded me of that a lot. I didn't get that so much as I got certainly traffic. And it's not just Benicio Del Toro being in both movies. Right. Uh, I got traffic and Zero Dark Thirty. That was sort of the yeah, combo I that I that. thought of. A little less sort of. Zero Dark Thirty being more of like a procedural and more of, and this being more of like a thriller and yeah. having some really great action sequences, uh, even some act, quote unquote action scenes where like almost nothing happens, like where people are stuck in a traffic jam and there's a, it's an amazing sequence at the border where they're caught in a traffic jam and it's yeah. super super tense and I, I really just kind of kind of got caught up in it and I thought the three leads were all really really good Benicio del Toro. I, I don't know if the last time he was this good in anything was maybe Traffic. Maybe Che. He was really good in Che, too. But Yeah. It's it's definitely, like, it feels like the best version of a character he's been playing some variations of. Like, sure. Savages as well. Yeah. But that, like, the most soulful version of it in yes. a while. Yes. I, I would agree. Even if I do think that the character is insanely silly as well. <laughs> I didn't think he was that silly, I have to say. I, I really got caught up in this movie. So yeah. we've, got, we've got a mixed response We're on mixed this on one. It. But yeah. it definitely, I, will, it, I think there's no doubting that it is gorgeously made. Yes. Roger and, Deakins, the cinematographer, who that, never like, yes. makes a, a bad looking no. movie. And that's and certainly that, like, not those, the case here. I mean, there are, there are multiple sequences, including the, the one in the beginning, that are like very well done the action super is dynamic well done. Yes. yeah absolutely all right well that's sicario we'll have maybe we'll have some more thoughts on some of these other big movies including black mass after we hopefully see them at uh, toronto let's get to behind the eight ball now where we wrap things up with three new releases on streaming we give you two listener recommendations that you guys sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and we also give you one random film which we've each chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists Allison, would you like me to go first, or do you want to go first? I would like to go first. All right, very well. I will allow you to go first, despite you agree disagreeing with me on Sicario. Why, thank you, Matthew. Yes, I'm very, very generous in that way. Are you ready to begin? Yes. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up is a movie I really liked a lot from last year. It is Dear White People, which is new to Netflix. Justin Simeon's directorial debut and a very sharp satire about race relations at a kind of high-end college campus. Um, it's, it's centered on four black students who are all in different ways involved in this escalating series of events that brings in this all black, the historically all black residential hall on campus, this provocative radio show that has the same title as the film, and ultimately a black themed party thrown by a group of white students. But it is, it's both very clever and very kind of cleverly directed. And I think very incisive on the experiences of being just very much in the minority on a campus, uh, in a group of people in general. Um, so that is Dear White People, now on Netflix. Highly recommend you check it out. New to Fandor is a movie that I've been really wanting to see, and I hadn't realized. It's actually out in theaters as we're recording this. Didn't ever get anything from a publicist. Didn't know it until I just I came up on Google as the movie times. But it's currently in release in New York as well as on Fandor. It is called Blind. And it is this Norwegian film from Eskil Voigt. Um, it's about a woman who has recently lost her sight and has kind of started staying in her home, not leaving her home. Um, she's married, but also, you know, ends up spending a lot of her time alone as well. And that I've read a lot about how it really tries to get in, in 
to to visualize the experience of being blind as possible or impossible as that may be to really kind of get inside the subjective experience of its main character so i'm really looking forward to checking that out that is blind now streaming on fandor and finally new to itunes is borgen this is the danish drama all three seasons of it an incredibly addictive and very smart one about a politician named Birgitta Nyborg, played by Sisa uh, Babbitt Knudsen, who uh, is also in Duke of Burgundy, and who becomes very unexpectedly the first female prime minister of Denmark. You don't need to know about Danish politics to watch this. In fact, I learned a lot about the basic uh, structure of the Danish government from this show, but it is also just... I mean, I think it's been compared to the West Wing, and I think that's fair. It is the West Wing without the sentimentality, I will say. And as much as it has idealistic characters, it is not a necessarily an idealistic show. So uh, good things happen sometimes, but bad things happen as well. That is Borgen, and it is now available on iTunes. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Well, first up, we have one from Matt in Madison, Wisconsin, who writes that a number of films by the terrific Japanese animation company Studio 4 Degrees C, I hope I'm saying that right, Studio 4 Celsius, uh, have just been added to Netflix, including the stylistically diverse omnibus films Genius Party and Genius Party Beyond and the feminist fairy tale Princess Arete. Chief among this batch, however, is the 2004 film Mind Game, directed by Masaaki Yuasa. The description offered by Netflix does not paint a clear picture of what this film really involves, and to be fair, it is difficult to properly describe, so I will do my best. Nishi, a dopey 20-something, stumbles onto his childhood crush Mayan one evening. After getting caught in the middle of a dispute between Mayan's father and some Yakuza thugs, Nishi is shot dead in the most comical fashion possible while cowering in a corner. Whisked away to a weird limbo state, Nishi meets with none other than the shape-shifting visage of God. Not quite ready to face non-existence, Nishi rushes back to the land of the living and takes advantage of an opportunity to play the hero with exceptionally unusual consequences. This film is a real marvel of creativity and one of the truest displays of the boundless visual possibilities the medium of animation can offer. Design shifts from scene to scene to match emotional pitch, broad and elastic one moment, detailed and serious the next. Big themes of fate, love, and what to do with one's life are sincerely considered while also being handled with a significant dose of good humor. Plot-wise, things don't always stick together, and the tone may be a bit manic for some tastes. For my money, though, Mind Games is an unparalleled joy, not just one of my favorite animated movies, but one of my favorite movies, period. I couldn't be happier that it is now streaming on Netflix, its first official North American distribution of any kind, if I'm not mistaken, and has a chance to reach the wider audience it truly deserves. Thanks, as always, for your thoughtful recommendations and conversations. Take it easy. Thank you for that. I have actually not seen that movie or heard of it, so I'm going to add that to my, my list right now, mm -hmm. Matt. And we have a recommendation from Austin in Claiborne, Texas, who writes, I just watched White Reindeer on Netflix this weekend and would easily recommend it for discussion or mention. Perhaps once we get closer to the madness of holiday season, I found it to be a very watchable, accessible story about grief, loss, cocaine, and wild swinger parties. In other words, it's the new Christmas standard. Sounds good to me. I've seen that one. It's a good movie. I would recommend it as well. There you go. All right, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? Uh, you gave me number three, so recent edition. 
Uh, and it is The Deadlands, which is newish to Netflix. This is a Maori film. It's directed by Toa Frazier. Uh, it was New, New Zealand's Academy Award entry last year. Um, here's a description from Netflix. A Maori chieftain's son seeks revenge after his tribe is massacred and aims to cross a daunting stretch of land to make an ally of a fearsome warrior. So... Not a lot of Maori action movies out there. I'm really <laughs> curious about this one. I, you know, really, really interested in seeing it. Uh, so that is The Deadlands. And it's number three on my, my list. All right, Matt, are you ready? Sure. All right. How about three new releases? All right. First up, maybe the last time Nicolas Cage played a recognizable human being on screen and one of his last really good performances, it's The Weatherman by Gore Verbinski. And yes, that is the same Gore Verbinski who makes the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and Lone Ranger and Rango. This is his rare, smaller picture, and it's actually a pretty good one about Nick Cage's hapless weatherman trying to get his messed up life back on track. That is The Weatherman that is streaming now on Netflix. Next up, Crime is the Disease and Only One Man is the Cure. Sylvester Stallone's Marion Cobretti, a.k.a. Cobra, which is now streaming on Hulu. This is one of the silliest and most over-the-top cop movies ever made, with Stallone's Cobretti, who proudly displays a picture of President Reagan in his office, <laughs> stymied at every turn by sniveling bureaucrats who think he should follow outdated concepts like Miranda rights and due process. Don't they know crime is a disease, Allison? These people are disgusting. <laughs> Shame on them. That is Cobra, streaming now on Hulu. And finally, you can go back to the birth of the found footage horror movie as the Blair Witch Project comes to Netflix. This massive hit from 1999's Sundance Film Festival made fake horror documentaries into an entire subgenre and made a really mean woman yell at me at my job at a comic book store back in 1999 when I dared to disagree with her after she insisted this movie was real. Huh. Because witches are real, Allison. Blair witches are real. Witches are a disease. And only college students with cameras are the cure, I guess. You know, that was one hell of a marketing campaign that they <laughs> did with that movie. <laughs> it really was. So that is the Blair Witch Project. That's a true story, by the way. I a woman you. yelled at me for claiming that the Blair Witch Project was a fictional film. Well, you know, if you're wrong, it's always better to be louder about it. That's right. That is that's, The internet has taught us anything. <laughs> it is that loudness equals correctness. All right, that is the Blair Witch Project on Netflix. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? My first one this time comes from David in Los Angeles. And he writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. Last night I was in the mood for some true crime, and so I took a chance on the 2009 documentary called Tall Hot Blonde, and it's spelled T-A-L-H-O-T-B-L-O-N-D, all one word, based purely on the thumbnail image on Netflix. The film is about a man who meets a teenage girl online and pretends to be 30 years younger than he really is in order to develop a relationship with her before becoming jealous and increasingly unhinged when the same woman strikes up a simultaneous online relationship with one of his co-workers. It reminded me a lot of the 2010 documentary Catfish, not only because of they cover similar subject matter, but because both films were obviously made on a very small budget, while Catfish stretched its money further and appeared more slickly produced, Tall Hot Blonde seems to have struck on an even more interesting story. It draws the premise of lying online out to its most catastrophic conclusion and is a riveting watch. It's available now on Netflix. And that's from David in California, Tall Hot Blonde. I hadn't heard of that one, but it does sound interesting as well. I'm going to add that one to my, my list right now. Thank you, David. 
Uh, we've also got a recommendation here from longtime listener Paul, who's on Twitter at Return of Smith. At Return of Smith, he writes, "Hey Matt and Allison, while 1997 had competing fills about volcanoes with Dante's Peak and Volcano, and 1998 had competing films about asteroids and Armageddon and Deep Impact." 2014 had two indie films from first-time directors dealing with Asian mothers coming to terms with their their son's homosexuality. Lilting stars Ben Whishaw and is a beautiful and heartbreaking film with some excellent lead performances. Eat With Me takes similar subject matter and tackles it in the most bland, boring, and amateurish way, so I would only recommend Lilting, but it's interesting to watch both films and really dissect why one works and one doesn't. Lilting is available on Netflix in the U.S. and is available to rent. Eat With Me is available on Netflix in Australia and New Zealand. Cheers from Paul, who is on Twitter, at Return of Smith. All right, and one from your My List. You gave me number 70, and number 70 on my list is Detropia. And I'll read you the description of this film. It's a documentary. As the focus of this sobering documentary, the decline of Detroit also reflects the nation's larger failure to keep up in a modern global economy. It's directed by Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Have you seen this one, Allison? I have not. It is also on my my list. It's on your my list as well. I know. It's one that's gotten a lot of good reviews. It's been praised. And also criticized in some interesting Oh, it has. Yes. By some people who thought it was kind of... Maybe glamorized. Or like, yeah, like... The destruction porn kind destruction, of thing. You yes. Know, I don't know. that. Well, it yeah, made the ruins of Detroit porn. look too beautiful, perhaps. Or just the relished it too much. Mm. You know, I think there's a whole kind of like urban investigation aspect of Detroit that almost, I don't know. that. So I've heard some interesting kind of like responses to it in that way, which well, made me more interested in it. Yeah, it's one I do want to check out at some point. So that's why that is on my my list. It is called Detropia, D-E-T-R-O-P-I-A. Allison, we have one of our most eclectic batches of listeners' choice options, perhaps in 94 episodes of Film Spotting SVU. I don't know if we've ever had three movies more disparate than these three. I am... I have no idea what's going to win here. I think I would guess one, but honestly, I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing what will yeah, happen. Yeah, I'm very curious. I have the first movie here. It is available on Netflix right now, and the name of the film is Mandingo. This is a film from 1975, and sort of both famous and infamous. It, uh, it got some of the most negative reviews of any film ever released by a major studio. Roger Ebert called it, quote, racist trash, but it also had its its defenders who thought it was actually kind of a, a very smart film in sort of exploitation film clothing. And of course, famously, Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of this film. And uh, obviously, if you've ever seen Django Unchained, the whole concept of Mandingo fighting, Mandingos being like sort of slaves who are forced to fight one another, that's a huge plot point in Django Unchained, and that's sort of taken directly out of the film, which was directed by Richard Fleischer and stars James Mason and Ken Norton. And I've never seen it. Allison has not. never seen it. It just recently became available on Netflix. And I think, Allison, you were, we were talking before we started recording that it could be interesting to talk about this film sort of in the vein of looking back at movies and consider, you know, like as as tastes change, as what we consider appropriate or politically correct changes, that perhaps movies that were deemed fine at, 
in their day can suddenly. I mean, this was like a Paramount release, right? Yes, it was made yeah. by Paramount Pictures. That movies, you know, their meanings. The movies are fixed, but their meanings are not always. That uh, that we we look at them, we interpret them through our modern eyes. Movies that were beloved at their in their day can seem very different. Uh, today so that that you thought that that might be something as a theme that we could perhaps yeah. i mean i talk was about. Honest, like i was at uh i was getting my nails done yesterday and i love this bre- story already breakfast at tiffany's was ah, on the tv and yes. that is a movie that is both one that i love and that also has a grotesque asian stereotype absolutely in in yellow face yes and i think you know it's interesting to talk about those like that parts of those parts of movies and what does how do we look at movies like that now? right how so. do we yeah a movie that we loved you know years ago or perhaps that was hailed as a masterpiece and now we look at it and we say this is horrific this is disgusting this or is part of it is right right exactly yeah. that part of it we find right what do we do with that one part that's objectionable yeah. if we like the rest of the movie it's an interesting question so that's option number one mandingo which is streaming now on netflix Option number two is a movie that was, it may still actually be in some theaters. It is going to be available for rental and on demand by the time uh, by the time our poll is over. It is called The Mend, and it is the first film from director John Magri. Uh, it stars Josh Lucas and Stephen Plunkett, and it is about two different siblings basically having a a weird interlude where they, they kind of come together at two low point at the low points in both of their lives. Um, I have seen this movie. You have not. Matt, I haven't right? seen it, but I've been you know following people on Twitter, just seeing the hugely positive response to people who have seen this, this movie. I can't think of a, the last time, maybe like Margaret might be the last time a movie that was sort of not on my radar at all has gotten this huge, like sort of swell of cult appreciation on Twitter to the point where I'm going, Oh, we! I've got to see this. Like it wasn't even really something I was uh, too aware of, but now I'm very much really looking forward to checking it out. So we we had the movie made available to us, and I was like, yes, we should definitely make this an option. Yeah, I I like it a lot. I don't know if I would put it up uh, against Margaret, though. I do love me like love Margaret. I but I do think it's a very good and very ambitious and well made movie. And it also I think it 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 features a very a kind of standout performance from Josh Lucas, who is the kind of actor who has always been around, but has never mm. seemed to find the role where you're like the role that really fits him. You know, in some ways he feels like the more sinister version of Bradley Cooper. Yeah. You know, and that this is a great fit for him. He is really riveting in this role. Yes. Um, so that's something since this is a movie about brothers, I think, I think we could do a whole podcast about movies about brothers mm. and that relationship, that particular relationship. We um, both got brothers, right? Uh, yes, we do. So, so we have personal just, experience to draw on. We can just spend the whole time, the whole venting, talking about our brothers <laughs> and telling embarrassing stories. Who doesn't want to hear that? Besides um, our brothers, no one. No one. Everyone. You'll you'll be riveted. Yes. So that is the men's and uh, option number two, and that is available on VOD and for rent. Our next option is also going to be available for VOD and for rent. We've mentioned it earlier on the show. It is the new Alex Gibney documentary, Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine. And Gibney, of course, is a very busy documentarian who's made some some fine documentaries, including Enron, Catching Hell. He makes about five a year. He made the one on uh, uh, Scientology, Scientology Going Clear that came out earlier this year. The Lance Armstrong documentary, The Armstrong Lie, which was a good one, too. He's a very busy man, and this is his latest film, at least at the moment. 
And it is about Steve Jobs, as we mentioned earlier. It's about the, the famous CEO of Apple. And I think the, the, the twist that uh, from everything I've read here is that it's not just a sort of fawning portrait of this great genius of uh, American capitalism, that it kind of goes beneath the sort of image that we have in our minds and maybe see some of the perhaps some of the darker or more complex sides of this guy that is so often valorized as this great figure in our culture. So I think there would be a lot to talk about there. I don't know when the last time we did anything about documentaries was. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while. We could we could uh, we could probably do a podcast just of Alex Gibney documentaries. He has done so many. That might be something to talk about as well. So that's option number three. Steve Jobs colon the man in the machine available on VOD and for rent. All right. Well, which of these movies, these very different movies, should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, September 21st at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, September 29th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks.